Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 21. <clears throat> Genesis 21. Always concerned about what to preach on on the Sundays that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In one sense, everything in the Bible relates to the gospel which we proclaim in the Supper. But in another very practical sense, sometimes it's difficult to make that connection in a way that enriches rather than distracts from our... Um, our uh, worship around the table. Well, at first glance, when I looked at this passage, I, I thought, well, this section of uh, Genesis is not going to be a very appropriate uh, study for this morning, but the, after working on it a bit, I've come to see that it's a wonderful passage to turn our hearts toward our confession of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great and only Savior. Well, let me read verses 8 to 21 as our text this morning. Genesis 21, verses 8 to 21. The child grew, speaking of Isaac, the child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lives there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert, became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. <clears throat> About four or five years ago, I went to see one of those widescreen IMAX movies. We were off on vacation one time. Only this one was different. This was a 3D movie. You ever been to a 3D movie? They give you those funny little glasses. And uh, without the glasses, everything looks so strange. It seems like you have double vision. But when you put the glasses in place, suddenly see a whole new world. Not simply the two-dimensional picture you're accustomed to, but pictures with depth and fullness that you never imagined. It's like you're right in the middle of it. Everything not only suddenly makes sense, it's wonderfully clear and valid. makes better sense than ever. I think our text is like that. It is rich and full. But in order to see its richness and fullness, you have to have the glasses. You have to look at it with the right perspective. The one which God has provided in the Word, which is quite different than the way we look at this the first time we read it. 
Now, the story itself is not hard to understand. Let me just review what we read very briefly. When Isaac is weaned, probably he's close to three years old by this time in that culture, Abraham, his father, throws a great party. But in the midst of all the activity, Sarah, his mother, sees something that is terribly wrong. Ishmael, Abraham's other son by the uh, servant Hagar, is mocking young Isaac. Well, make no mistake, this is not just two little kids playing. Ishmael is 16 or 17 years old and is maliciously mocking his half-brother. Now, there's all kinds of speculation as to what the nature of the mocking is, but the Apostle Paul, when he reflects on this in Galatians 4, calls it persecution. It's not a small thing. Well, Sarah is outraged, as a mother would tend to be, and demands that Abraham send Hagar and her son away. And surprisingly, God takes Sarah's side and tells Abraham to do what she says. And so he does, sends them off, never to see them again, as best we can tell. But when they're lost and out of water, God intervenes to save them. He points them to a well and provides for their survival, promising again that Ishmael, too, would become a great nation. And so the story ends. Story's easy to describe. Probably got it the first time we read it. The problem isn't describing it, the problem is understanding. Why does God work this out in such a way? Isn't this cruel? Where's God's compassion here? What's the point of these strange events recorded for us here in Genesis 21? Well, here's where we need the 3D glasses. You see, the answers lie in remembering what God's plan is. Remembering exactly what is being foreshadowed in the life and birth of Isaac. You remember back, God made a covenant with Abraham, a far-reaching, gracious covenant. And God promised that this covenant would come to fulfillment through the promised seed. Abraham and, I, Abraham and Sarah tried and tried and tried to have a child, but they were frustrated in their efforts and nothing ever happened. But then God himself provided this promised heir, this baby, Isaac. But according to the Bible, Isaac was only a foreshadowing of the real promised seed through whom all the covenant promises would come to fulfillment. That was to be, and is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't make this up in some flight of fancy. This is the New Testament's interpretation. Galatians 3.16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. In other words, the point of all of this story about Isaac, the promised seed of Abraham, the real point is to show us something about Christ. That's the glasses we need. God is showing us, he's not telling us a story about Isaac and Ishmael primarily, he's showing us something about Christ. 
Only as we view these events through those lenses, looking for what God is teaching us about the Lord Jesus, will it all make any sense. But when we view it that way, it not only makes sense, it tells us profound things about God's plan to save, which is now fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. Now for you kids taking notes, all of that's introduction. The introduction is longer than the rest of the sermon, probably. Viewing the passage that way then, let me suggest three things which it intends to show us concerning Christ. The first is this, that Jesus takes precedence over family ties. Jesus takes precedence over family ties. This week, Jane and I, missing our kids so much, got to scheming and dreaming about how we might get down to San Diego when they're on spring break. It's not going to work. It's the week before Easter when we're very busy. Oh, we miss those kids. They're, they're etched in our hearts. Don't you think Abraham felt that way about his son? Sure he did. You don't raise a boy as your only child for 17 years. And they just not care what happens to him. In fact, I suspect he felt some of that toward Hagar. You don't have intimate relation with a woman who bears your only child and raises him in your home for 17 years and then care nothing about what happens to her. No wonder we read in verse 11 that when Sarah told Abraham to get rid of Hagar and her son, Ishmael, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. In fact, John Calvin suggests that perhaps the reason that Abraham gave them such meager supplies was that he didn't want them to get very far away before he would see them again. And the truth is, Abraham was not only distressed about the situation, he was distressed, undoubtedly, with Sarah for her lack of concern. After all, Hagar was good enough when they desperately wanted a son. It was Sarah's idea, you remember. When Ishmael was born, he had been considered Sarah's son, not just Hagar's son. Now Sarah can only call Hagar that slave woman. And Ishmael, the slave woman's son. How distressing Abraham must have found this bitterness in his own family. Ah, but most distressing at all, of all is the fact that God agreed with Sarah. Verse 12, God said to him, Don't be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. Listen to Sarah. She's saying, Send my own son away. How can that be right? Well, remember our glasses? Remember what's at stake here? God reminds Abraham, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Isaac is the promised seed, Abraham. And remember, Isaac is representative of God's plan, to, which will be fulfilled in Jesus. 
And Jesus does indeed take precedence over all of our family ties. Jesus made the same point in Matthew 10. He said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's what was going on with Abraham. Already back then he was having to learn that God took precedence, God's plan took precedence over his own family ties as deep and as strong as they might be. And we're still having to learn the same thing, aren't we? Ian Good drives the point home to us. I quote him, Sometimes people hold themselves back from fully obeying the call of God because of family concerns. They say to themselves, If I go out as a missionary, how will I find a spouse? Or who will take care of my parents? Or what will happen to my children? The answer is God is able to take care of those things. But he always takes precedence over our family ties. What a difficult situation Abraham faced. But look at verse 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. Abraham obeyed God. He understood that the promise of God was focused in Isaac. The promise to be fulfilled in Jesus, as he didn't know at that point. But he understood that this promise focused in Isaac, and ultimately in Jesus, took precedence over how he felt and what he loved, and even the son that he loved. He didn't have to understand how God could work all this out, how God could take care of it. He only had to obey what God said. And that's what he did. And so must you and I. For Christ is still more important than our family. He still takes precedence. He will not compete. Then there's a second great truth hidden here. And that's this. God won't tolerate alternatives to the gospel. God won't tolerate alternatives to the gospel. I've told you about my friend back in New Jersey before, I think when we were studying James, but the fact that this is Super Bowl Sunday, I have to tell you again because he's a busy man today, I know him well. This guy loved to play the part of the big spender, and when Super Bowl time came along, he was making bets with everyone about who would win the football game. He would bet $100 to this guy. He would bet $100 over here, and he'd bet $50 over here, whatever kind of bets he could get. And I was always amazed that someone, even though he was a successful businessman, would risk several hundred dollars on a football game. Until one day I learned his secret. He bet on both teams. Today I'm sure he has a few hundred dollars out on the New York Giants and about the same amount on the Baltimore Ravens. So tonight 
To some, he's going to be a shrewd winner. And to others, he's going to be such a magnanimous loser. We make great confessions of faith. We pledge ourselves to trust him and follow him no matter what. But at the same time, we have a backup plan. We provide ourselves a safety net just in case God doesn't come through. In other words, we didn't really trust him for anything. I think Abraham was in that kind of situation. God had given him Isaac, the child of promise. But then again, he still had Ishmael just in case. You know, infant mortality being what it is, Isaac's just a little kid. And the truth is, Abraham was pretty proud of his son Ishmael. I mean, who has a son at 86 years old? Ishmael was a testimony to Abraham's virility. His son in his old age was now a young man. I'm sure he was proud of him. His father, the apple of his father's eye. So as happy as Abraham was to have Isaac born, and of course Sarah was happier still, Abraham may still have been clinging to Ishmael as his backup plan. Now if you think of all of this in light of what perhaps you know is coming in the next chapter, when God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, this is going to be the supreme test of his faith. Will you take the promised, the promised seed in whom all the promises are going to be fulfilled and sacrifice him to me? That's what God's going to require. But you see, as long as Isaac is here as a backup, there's no test of faith at all. Sure, Lord, I'll give you Isaac, and of course... If it doesn't work out, well, I still have Ishmael, you know. And so, in our text here, after reminding Abraham that the promises, you remember Abraham, will come through Isaac, God tells Abraham to send Ishmael away. God is insisting that there be no alternative available to Abraham but to trust God's word. Now, why is that so important? Lots of people have several children. Why is this so important? Well, remember our 3D glasses? Isaac represents the promise of the gospel to be fulfilled in Christ. God will not tolerate any alternatives to his plan, to the gospel. If Isaac and Ishmael both share in the inheritance, the gospel is lost. To have them both be heirs would be to say that Abraham and Sarah's human effort, their scheming to get a son by Hagar, was equally effective to bring about the heir of the covenant promises as God's supernatural bring life from the death work to bring about Isaac. In other words, salvation can come by self-help or salvation can come by trusting God. It doesn't really matter which, choose what you want. But there's no such thing. God has no plan but Jesus. And he will not tolerate any alternatives to the gospel of his son. Not even in the ancient pictures foreshadowing his coming. Now we know that God intends for us to learn this lesson 
from Genesis 21, for we find this stated clearly in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 4. Let me read a little bit of Galatians 4 if you want to turn with me. Galatians 4 verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Verse 24. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for the Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds with the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Then he quotes from Isaiah 54, and we pick up again in verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, this is a difficult passage, and there are all kinds of details that we're not going to go into this morning. But as you can perhaps see, the Apostle Paul is clearly writing about Genesis 21. And what's his point? Well, the Christians in Galatia who began by just believing the gospel of Christ have suddenly had their ranks infiltrated by those who said, oh no, that's not enough. You have, to, you have to keep the law. You have to become Jews. You have to do some other things. There's more to it than just trusting in Christ. But the Holy Spirit wants to make clear, oh no. There are no, no alternative roads to salvation here. There are not many different Gospels, one of trusting Christ and one of keeping the law and earning it on your own. There's no such thing. We are called to wholeheartedly trust in Christ with nothing else to offer and to throw off any other notion of an alternate plan. Or in Paul's words, get rid of the slave woman and her son. If we don't, we're not the children of promise. We're still in slavery. In other words, God won't tolerate alternatives to the gospel. He would not allow Abraham any safety net, nor will he allow you and me to trust anything but Jesus alone. Folks, we need to be reminded of this. The gospel has come to be covered with so many barnacles of human works that it's hardly recognizable anymore. We can hardly perceive that there's faith at all. It's so much about keeping the law and doing the right things and keeping everyone happy and living a good life. God won't tolerate such faith. Our hope is in Jesus alone. And we Christians need to hear this too. For the truth is, most of us has very little experience living in total dependence upon God's promise. For we refuse to ever venture out to serve him without a self-help safety net. Just in case. 
But don't you see when we're so fearful that we will only ultimately trust in that which we can personally guarantee. We too deny the power of the gospel of Christ. God won't tolerate alternatives. His plan is in Christ alone. Period. One more truth I want to dig out before we begin, before we uh, close. <laughs> Third thing, God cares about the nation. God cares about the nation. Some, sometimes it seems to people that God must not care about the world. How can he allow the suffering and the wickedness to continue? Either he's unable to stop it or he just doesn't care. So goes the logic of the cynic. But things are not always as they seem, you know. What we think we know may be just the opposite of what is really true. Friday night, Kevin Bullis reminded us that uh, Peter tells us that the reason the Lord doesn't put it into the suffering is not his lack of concern, but it's his grace that would want more people to yet be saved. Oh, he could judge in a moment and destroy all the wickedness, but that also would be the end of grace. It's his grace, not his lack of grace. It causes them to allow the struggle to continue. God may not seem to care, but it really is his intense desire, his intense compassion, which makes it seem that way. Well, the same thing is going on here in Genesis 21. When we first read this passage, it seems to us that God is harsh and uncaring. How can God just tell Abraham to kick out his own son? How can Abraham send him out into the desert, possibly to die? How can this be? Where is God in all of this? Even though there are hints in the text here that uh, God has some concern. In verse 13, God promises to make Ishmael himself a great nation. And in verses 17 to 19, when it looks like they're going to die, the Lord appears to them in the desert and hears Ishmael's cry and causes them to survive and provides them water and, and promises, reiterates his promise to make him a great nation. These things ought to give us a hint that this is not a lack of compassion we're talking about here. Ah, but when we see this text through the 3D glasses, of the New Testament. When we understand that Isaac is representing the work of Christ to us here, then we really see the compassion of God. You see, the promise is that God will fulfill his covenant to bring salvation to the world through the singular seed of Abraham, who's Isaac here for a moment, but eventually is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to die for sinners and rise in victory. But apart from that plan, which involves getting Ishmael out of the picture so that the plan can be fulfilled, apart from that plan, there is no hope whatever for the world. There's no hope for Ishmael. There's no hope for Hagar. There's no hope for the nations that will come from Ishmael. There's no hope for you and for me. 
is God lacking compassion? When he removes Ishmael from the picture in order that he might fulfill his plan, which is pointing us to Christ. Oh no, this is his great mercy. This is evidence of his great compassion for the world. Only when the gospel of Jesus can be proclaimed to the world as a light to the Gentiles, as he's now become, only then is there hope of salvation for people like Ishmael. Well, it may not look like you might expect, but God cares about the nation. These events all took place that the Savior might come and accomplish God's reconciling work so that now, today, good news can be proclaimed not just to, to Isaac, and not just to Ishmael, but to every nation and every people group and every culture and every race and every language and every part of the earth. And what do we have to proclaim? That God so loved the world that he gave his own only begotten son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. When God insisted that Ishmael be sent away, it was not that he didn't care about the nation. It was only that his great plan might be accomplished in order that the nation might be saved. God cares about the world. Our perspective is often so small. With little understanding of God's unfolding plan, we read a passage like this and we proceed to put God on trial. How dare he break up a family? How dare he tell Abraham to disinherit his own son? How dare he have no compassion? And so we blaspheme him, quietly, of course. But if we read these things with the glasses of God's word, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit given to us through the apostles, they explain and interpret the work of Christ here. And then we learn a truth that's more wonderful than we could have imagined, that here the gospel is set before us in types and shadows. Here we learn, as Jesus will explain later, that the Lord demands precedence over all of our family ties. Why? Because he's unloving and he doesn't care about our families? Oh, no. Because through the gospel, he is adopting us into his very own family, which is infinitely more important than any of our family ties. And we learn, as the apostles explain later, that God will not tolerate any alternatives to the gospel. Why? Because he's narrow-minded? No, because there's no other hope. Every other gospel ends in slavery. There's no backup plan. There's only Jesus. And here we learn, as the whole New Testament proclaims, that God cares about the nations, not with the kind of emotional sentimentalism that sometimes we conjure up to care about hurting people, but he cares enough to take every difficult step necessary in order to procure salvation. Now that's what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. That here, God is not just hinted, at what he intends to do, but here we celebrate he has accomplished it. He has gone to, to, to greater measure than we could have ever imagined to accomplish it. For God became flesh in the person of Jesus and lived in obedience and went to the cross faithful all the way to death that we might be saved. And God has raised him from the dead so that we can know that we are as we trust 
in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for this text, which uh, boggles our minds at first. When we think about it, Lord, through the eyes of faith that you've given us, through your word, through the, the testimony of the apostles, the illumination of the Spirit, we see that what we have unfolding here in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael is a wonderful uh, part of your uh, prediction of the work of Christ and of what our response should be. So, Lord, may we not be... Uh, May we not withhold for a moment our response. May we be faithful. Lord, may we break any tie. May we go to any length. May we trust nothing else. But rest ourselves in Jesus as we take the gospel to the nations in obedience to your plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.